I'm going to uh, begin with prayer, and I would just ask you to join with me in praying for uh, many people in our church are facing uh, severe trial right now. Um, we've got several who are facing situations with uh, cancer uh, that are significant. We have others who have COVID. Uh, there seems to be another round of COVID that's come through the area. Uh, by the way, 16 or no, 17 of the boys from Teen Challenge have COVID right now. Yes, uh, the, the director, Adam Grunhofer, and his wife, Anna, both had it this past week. So that's why they were not with us last Sunday. They took precautions, and we're thankful for that. But please keep them in prayer. Today, uh, Deb, is she here yet? She ran out. Deb ordered online. I, I was speaking with Adam this morning and said, how can we come alongside you guys right now while you're, you know, you're hurting and stuff? And he said, you know what the boys need? He goes, they're, they're just bored. You know, COVID doesn't affect the young like it does the older. And so they do feel the symptoms. They're dragging around, but they can't go anywhere or do anything. He said, we need board games. And so the first thought was to reach out to the body. And I thought, nobody's going to want those board games back <laughs> that have been played by a bunch of guys with COVID. So Deb came up with this brilliant idea and said, let me get online. She ordered board games, and then they were also requesting uh, electrolyte powder from like a, a vitamin or a health store. And she found larger containers of it, and so we shipped it all. Uh, today she ordered it. It'll be there tomorrow. So praise God. So thank you for your faithful giving to the church. That's the kind of, that gives you a picture of heavy, heavy things uh, across the board, even folks who are facing trials and tribulations in their marriages. So um, I, I honestly, I don't know if I've ever seen a time when so much has come on at one time. And I do think it reflects where we are as a people, not just as a church, but I mean in the community with coming out of the COVID last year, this COVID from last year, and just the heaviness. And I also think there's spiritual attack in it. I think the enemy would love to disrupt what God is doing. I just came out of a finance team meeting. Uh, we spent a couple hours together. It's been a joy. Every time we meet, it's a joy. And the faithfulness of God's people in giving. And our church, I just thank the Lord for that. And I thank the Lord for uh, the commitment that we've made to God to be a fellowship, to be people of the word, to truly worship God, and I just think that ticks Satan off. And then, of course, I've been kind of saying some things from the pulpit uh, recently that maybe I'm sure the enemy's not happy about. And uh, so let, we need to pray. Spiritual warfare, we're in the midst of it, and I, <clears throat> I believe we need to lift a lot of folks up. Ed, good to see you tonight. I know you've been, been going through a ton. So, amen. Well, let's, let's pray right now. Father... It is truly a joy to, to bring people before you. But Lord, before we even do that, Jesus taught us how to pray that first we begin with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we remember who you are as our daddy, but we also see you as a God who is in complete control 
and we give thanks to you that you are our provider, you are our protector, you are the one that brings us through the trials and difficulties of life, you are the one that is using everything that we experience to grow us, to test us, and to mature us. So Lord, we're asking tonight that you would continue to minister to so many in our fellowship and even folks that we're hearing about from members of our church, uh, those who are suffering outside of our fellowship. We just pray, Lord, that all of this would draw people closer to you. Uh, your word says that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, and what he meant by that was not praise worship. He was talking about if we would simply focus on the fact that he went to the cross, he was lifted up on the cross. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So Lord, that we have to agree with the Apostle Paul, that we are not ashamed of the gospel. We believe it's the power of God to those who believe. And we pray for those who are hurting, pray for those who are in a time of testing, those who are facing trials and tribulations. And we're asking, Lord, that, that they would see you in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering. They would draw near to you because you are already near to them. Lord, I am blown away when I look at Scripture and read and learn that even when we are unfaithful, you still remain faithful to us. That you, your love for us never changes. That, Lord, there, there's nothing we can do that would change your love for us. Those of us who are saved, who've been born again, that steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And so we give you praise and honor and glory, and we bring these requests asking in behalf of those, in some cases, they're even too weary to know how to pray. That doubt has entered in. And we pray in the name of Jesus that you would strengthen them, you would encourage them, both in their mind, in their emotions, in their body, in every facet of their life. Minister to them, Lord. And tonight, Lord, as we study in the Word of God, may we be sharpened. May we be strengthened and encouraged tonight. And may we leave better than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, again, good to see you. And uh, hey, Gordon, can I, can I impose on you to pass something out for me? That would be great. I've got copies here, and I think I've got more than enough for everybody. And I'd like for you to have a copy of this because early in our study here, we're going to look at something. Uh, we have now approached chapter 31, the final chapter of 1 Samuel. We have made it through 1 Samuel. Praise the Lord. And uh, we'll continue right on on Thursday nights into 2 Samuel. And uh, tonight uh, we come to the close of 1 Samuel, which is actually the closing out of King Saul. This is where we learn about King Saul's death. We already last week heard from the spirit of Samuel who was brought forth by a witch. Um, normally that has not happened. God does not work through witches. God does not want us to go to a witch or to uh, a medium of any sort. 
to try and communicate with the dead. The Bible clearly teaches that you cannot communicate with the dead. And so to do so is to enter into witchcraft. And yet God uh, made this possible where the spirit of Samuel came forth and again reminded Saul of everything that God had said to him earlier and finally told him, Saul, tomorrow you will die. And so, so we know that uh, this is the end, and we're going to look at that closely. But it's not just a sad story because Saul lived a rebellious life before God and never trusted truly, trusted in the Lord. But it's, it's also the fallout of that life. I think tonight one of the main lessons in this study, and it's for those of us who are in leadership of any group or any people, those of us who are the head of a home, those of us who have children under our protection and care, or grandchildren, uh, how we live our life regarding our relationship to God does have a direct impact on our children and their children. It just does. You might say, I don't know about that because I've tried to live for the Lord through my life and my kids are not following the Lord. Don't ever guess, don't ever think that the Holy Spirit of God who has led you to live your life before the Lord is not using everything that you've taught and that you have exemplified to, to remind those children. Okay, I believe that the Holy Spirit's role in the world is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so whether they show you that they are respond, responding or not doesn't matter. It's what the Bible says. That's a promise of God that the Holy Spirit's convicting them. So be, be faithful. Continue to remain faithful. But what we find in, Saul, in Saul's life is a man who didn't model someone who trusts God. In his role of leadership, he, he uh, rebelled against God. He did things his own way. And because of that, uh, the children of Israel suffered greatly. And we're going to see even tonight that not only did Israel suffer and lose many men in the battle against the Philistines, but even his sons lost their lives. Even Jonathan, who was faithful to God, who was a man of God, a warrior for God, and yet he, he lost his life in this battle along with his father. So it's a sad story, and I think... Uh, I think there's a lot of people who are impacted by how we live our lives. They, they just are. And we need to take ownership of that and responsibility. We're not responsible for the outcome. The Bible says that the, the soul that sins shall die. And uh, the father's not going to suffer the sins of the son, and neither will the son suffer the sins of the father. So it's upon every person to be faithful to God. But we can have an impact in whether we point them to Jesus or whether we show them a life lived for self and trying to carry it out on our own. So this is a great study. Let's get started. Verse 1, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. If you look at the map that I just gave you, this gives us a perspective of the, the, the significance of this, this battle that took place. First of all, I want to say to you that um, God had told Saul early in his kingship, you need 
to take out the Amalekites, wipe them off the face of the earth. And Saul disobeyed God, did not do it. And Saul, neither did Saul deal with the Philistines, as God said. Uh, and the way he lived for himself, he left Israel susceptible, vulnerable to the Philistines. The Philistines were the arch enemy of Israel. And so what we see here is the Philistines literally encamped or lived on the east, uh, I'm sorry, the west and the southwest, and even a little bit to the south of Israel, the land of Israel. And so uh, it shows down on the left corner, Aphek, and that's where they began uh, when they mounted their army, put all their folks. Remember last week we studied that the king, the king of Gath, which is one of the Philistine cities, uh, who had David there, kind of David was under him, and he told David, you're not going to go to battle, but we're going to go to battle against Israel. This is the battle. And they took this mighty army and they marched some 40 plus miles. You can see the route that they took along the, along the west, close to the Mediterranean Sea. Remember, the Philistines came from an island off of Greece. So they are very much a seafaring people. They understand that. They're, 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 they're trained in warfare. Uh, having been close to the Greeks and watching the Greeks. They understood how to work with iron. And so they had weapons that Israel did not have. And here they are making their way up through the territory that they possessed and even north of their territory. And then they cut over to the east. You can see Israel here. Now, it's not on the map, and let me just show you. If you want to find where, where Jerusalem would be, it's down south of this map. That's how far north the Philistines have moved out of their territory up towards Galilee, which is where Jesus was from, or where he, I'm not, not from, but where he had his ministry. Most of his ministry was at, by the Sea of Galilee, which is north of Israel. Well, they're heading up in that direction. And, um, and then they cut over to the east, and now they're close to the Jordan River. Israel today would be the territory on the west side of the Jordan River. And that's where we see Mount Gilboa here, just, just west of the, of the Jordan River. And so they, they come in, and if you look at the map, number one, the Philistines muster their forces at Aphek and advance to Shunem, which is way up to the north, so that's a long journey, probably at least a couple days with an army. And then they, uh, number two, the Israelites set up at the top of the map. They set up camp at Jezreel. So they're just kind of at the foothills of the mountain. Remember I said that they were in a position where when the Philistines came in, they were locked in. There was no way to escape the Philistine army. That's what Saul uh, began to see was, oh my goodness, we are in serious trouble. And notice uh, the Philistines came in from the from the. Uh, the west, they moved east, and then they moved, moved south down to where Jezreel is. So now they've, they've cornered them. There is a huge uh, mountain right there. There's a mountain ridge. There's a Jordan River. They can't go anywhere that direction. They can only go back towards the west, which is the direction that the Philistines came from. They, they are cornered in this area. And then number three, the battle begins. And because the Israelites were in a position that they couldn't win from, they, they fled and they headed up. And this is, this is what happens when you're under a king 
who doesn't follow God, who doesn't let God lead. And so now they're like, they're just running around trying to somehow escape this mighty army of the enemy of God. And they head up towards on the slopes of the Gilboa, and there Saul and his sons are killed. Not just Saul and his sons, but that's where the Israelites, uh, the soldiers are slain as well. So, so the Philistines have their way with Israel and the king. Um, all of this was prophesied, was given to Saul. He knew it. And so he entered this battle knowing that he had no chance. And, and then if you go to number four, the, the bodies of Saul and his sons are hung on the walls of, the, of Beth, Bethshin. That was after the war, after the battle, rather. Um, a day later, the Philistines came into the battlefield where they had slain all the Israelites. They found Saul's, Saul's body. They severed his head from his body. They took the armor that he wore as a king and any other possessions that were still there. They took his body and they took uh, his sons and hauled them over. Look at this, right on the edge of the Jordan River, which is in the area, the territory of Israel. So they didn't leave Israel. They wanted to stick it in God's face. Remember now, when God raised up the Israelites, he said through Moses that through you, my name will be great. I want all the nations of the world to know that I am the one true God. And you will be the ones who will proclaim that through my leadership as I lead you people will realize they have the God of all gods. And here, the Philistines, the enemy of God, are mocking, laughing, and now they're making fun of, literally hanging Saul and his son's bodies, a severed, there's no head on Saul, Saul's body, hanging them right there in Israel to mock God. And then, of course, uh, number five, the men of Jabesh-Gilead travel through the night to recover the bodies of Saul and his sons, perhaps as repayment for Saul's rescue of the town from the Ammonites years earlier. And so, uh, and also I'm sure they were wanting to recover the name of the Lord, you know. And so they, they went and took the bodies and they burned them, um, gave them proper burial with the bones. So anyway, that kind of just gives you a picture of how far Israel had fallen and how far the enemy had encroached because of a king that did not follow God. In our lives, those who are under our leadership suffer when we do not follow the Lord. They just do. And so I, I look at our nation, I look at the leadership right now. We don't have any right to say, well, I don't know where God is in all this. Why isn't God doing something? Why is He letting our nation... No, we're the reason that our nation is in trouble because we're not following God, and those in leadership are not following God. But we can easily point the finger at the White House, but what are we doing? Are we praying? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we praying to God and asking Him to, to raise up righteousness, a standard once again, and to expose the darkness of evil that has moved in over our nation. I mean, th th this is on us, right? This is our role. This is who we are. Our children need to see us leaning into God 
when times come uh, or get dark like they are now in America. And so that, that just to me is a powerful picture. Uh, but the thing I want you to, a couple things about this, what, we, what we've looked at. Number one, this entire picture that you see on that map is orchestrated by God. This is the judgment of God against a king who turned from him. God allowed the enemy to encroach. God allowed the enemy to pin their bodies to the wall. God allowed it. This is the, this is the fallout of sin. And oftentimes, you know, when sin presents itself to us, um, and by the way, I don't believe that Satan presents sin to us uh, most of the time. In fact, it's very likely that you've never, sin has never come to you through Satan. Satan is not a multifaceted being. He's a created being of God. He has no omnipresence. He cannot be in more than one place at one time. So for you to think that somehow Satan is attacking you, that's not the case. He does have uh, dominion over, over demons, fallen angels, and they can attack, they can uh, pinpoint and come after us, but you're not getting attacked by Satan himself. So don't, you know, don't go with that idea. He, he's not that good. He can't do that, hit everybody at, all over the earth. He's not anything like God. But, but when we are facing attack, you know, this is when we have a choice. And a lot of times what happens, we, 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 sometimes we turn to the Lord and sometimes we take matters in our own hands and we try to fight our way out of it. And that's how Saul lived as a king. And it ended very poorly for him. It will end po poorly for any person who, allows, who gives sin a place in their life. So anyway, that's where we want to go here. Um, let me, uh, let's get started here. At verse 2, And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. Uh, tragically, Saul's sons were affected in the judgment of God against their father Saul. Jonathan, we know Jonathan as a brave warrior, right? Uh, but he too suffered in this judgment against his father. Even in death, Jonathan remained loyal. He, he continued to fight for the Lord. He fought for the nation of Israel. He fought for his father, even though he knew that David was supposed to be the king. But he was, he was obedient, and he, he was willing to do whatever it took. And so even Jonathan, this righteous warrior for God, lost his life in battle. Okay? Uh, while their deaths are tragic, they too are part of the, God's divine plan. Uh, let me explain that. The, these boys, uh, these sons of Saul, had they lived and David became king, they would have been a threat to the throne. Now, I don't believe Jonathan would have been, because Jonathan already said he believed that David was going to be the king. But the other brothers probably would have tried to somehow claim the throne. So it was common for a king in any nation, to take out the family members of the former king. You just do. You kill them so that there's no threat to the throne under your leadership. And so what's interesting here to me is that uh, you say, well, then Jonathan should have lived because he wouldn't have been a threat to David. 
Would Jonathan been able to let David kill his brothers? So, I mean, we, there's, there's nuances here. But more than anything, God brought Jonathan home to heaven. So even when we see something that we don't understand and something that doesn't seem right, a righteous, godly man is having to die for the sins of his father, well, we don't know what God sees. We don't know the future. God does. God has foreknowledge and he is sovereign, meaning he knows how things would have played out had those boys lived, had Jonathan lived. He also has control. God has control. And it's his to determine. And so he took out the three boys. There was no threat to David coming in. And none of that is a surprise. I mean, if you remember back, Samuel told Saul, after he rebelled against God, um, Samuel told him from the Lord, uh, your family will not be on the throne. They, they will not see the throne. It's, you're done. Well, back then we probably weren't thinking God was going to kill the boys, but that's what God did. He took them out. Okay? Uh, verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So Saul is climbing the side of Gilboa with his men, and the archers of the Philistines probably were positioned in such a way that they were able to fire their arrows long distance, long arrows, and they hit Saul. And it was more than one arrow that hit Saul. Um, uh, scholars believe absolutely by the text that what Saul received when the arrows hit him was, was a death blow. They were, they were mortal wounds. And Saul was going to die. And the arrows did the damage, okay? But he was still alive. And uh, so Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. So Saul at this point is concerned for didn't want to die at the hands of the enemy. He, he knows he's going to die, and he doesn't want to die at the hands of the enemy. What's missing in this? Saul has known throughout his kingship that God said, you will not inherit the throne. I've already raised up somebody else to be king, and he's your neighbor. Saul has heard from, from Samuel, the spirit of Samuel, the, the day before, the night before, you're going to die tomorrow on the battlefield. If I knew I was going to die because of my sins, what would I want to do to prepare myself before I face God? I think I'd want to repent. Do you see any repentance? There is no repentance in Saul. Way back at the beginning of Saul's kingship, when he was told You're gonna, the kingdom's going to be taken from you, some of us probably thought, that, that's harsh. Why would God do that? This man could repent. He could change. God had foreknowledge. He knew this is exactly how Saul would act. So here he is, and he's only trying to think of himself. I don't want to die. I don't want the enemy to kill me. Uh, not thinking of Israel. And so not repenting before God for how he led the nation. Um, it's just a sad situation. And so he goes further. He said, uh, but this, his armor bearer would not. He would not kill him, for he feared greatly. And therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. 
um, the, the, the armor bearer thought, if I kill Saul, I'm, that's on my hands. I'm not going to let that happen. And so Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. And he, he was stricken by the arrows. Some people say, well, this was a suicide. Others would argue, no, he was already mortally wounded. He was going to die. There's no, out, there's no other outcome than that he will die. He's simply not wanting the enemy to finish him off. So he leaned into his sword. Now, I'll tell you that uh, that's not really a... I still think Saul was totally out of God's will by leaning into the sword. I don't think it's ours. We're not to, we're not to take life like that. There is a thing called just war, and I believe that there's justice in war. If it's a war that honors God, uh, and there were many wars in the Bible that were honorable to God, and He allowed death to happen at war, but we're not to pick and choose. Remember Dr. Kevorkian, the whole idea of euthanasia, mercy killings, I've got cancer, I'm terminal, if you'll just go ahead and, and finish it off so I don't suffer. But that's not, now you've taken things out of God's hands. That's why it's wrong. And so we really shouldn't play with life and death that way. We allow the Lord to play out. Now, it's perfectly fine if someone says they find out that they have a life-threatening illness and they can go through some treatment that's going to literally take away their quality of life and, and maybe they live an extra six months to a year, but they're going to be suffering the whole time. They might choose and say, no, I'll just let this naturally happen. I don't want to receive that treatment, knowing that they're going to die. unless So they pray to the Lord, heal me. But if you choose not to heal, Lord, then I'm coming to you. That's different. They're not choosing to kill themselves. They're not trying to end or cut short the days they have. Why is that a problem? I'll tell you why. Because God is always at work. Even in the worst case scenario situations, God's at work. So someone's dying and they're in pain, they're in suffering. How do you know that the Lord is not using that to do something in them? You say, no, they're, they're out of their mind. They, they're, they're drugged up. They can't even... How do you know the Lord's not using their situation to speak to someone else? Not many times as someone is suffering and dying, someone else is being wooed by the Holy Spirit. They're coming closer to God. So all of that is God's work, right? He, or God does the orchestrating of our lives. We're never to take that away from the Lord, okay? David would not have, he, he did not kill Saul. When he had, twice, did not, he had opportunity. He would not do it. And so uh, his armor bearer said, no, I'm not doing it. And Saul obviously died. Now, uh, verse 5, and when his armor bearer Saul, this is very important here, this verse. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead. So what we know from this is the armor bearer is still alive. And he saw that Saul had died. Okay? Then he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Okay? Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer. And that's not all. And all his men on the same day together. 
I want to tell you something. You don't want to mess with the judgment of God. I, I, I'm thankful that I'm, I'm born again. I'm thankful that I've been washed by the blood of Jesus, that now I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There is not going to be a judgment on my life. I will be raised at the first resurrection. The only judgment that God will make uh, with me is by my good works on the earth. I will not be judged according to my sins because I have put my faith in Jesus who washed me and cleansed me. He was judged by the Father for sin. Amen? I don't have to face a sin penalty. I don't have to face a judgment for sin. The second resurrection, when God raises the unbelievers, they go to the great white throne judgment and they will face judgment for their sins. They will be told by the Father, uh, He'll throw them in the outer darkness. He'll speak it, they go to outer darkness. They will be in the, in the uh, lake of fire with Satan and his demonic forces. Wow! For all eternity, by the way. We're going to look at that this coming Sunday morning. We're going to take a look at that, what it means to be there eternally. So anyway, um, th th this is a very, very important passage here that we're looking at. Uh, Saul knew that he was going to die, and yet he still didn't repent. And that tells us, that's why the Bible, you know, God said from the beginning, that's not my choice. Saul is the people's choice. And they chose someone who walked in the flesh. God's choice was a man who walked by the Spirit, David. And that's the difference. Verse 7, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. So now you've got the Philistines who not only have encroached into the land of Israel from the north and have come near the Jordan River, now they've crossed the river. Now they're even moving further in. And what about the people of God under Saul's leadership? Saul had taught the people to fear him, not the Lord. So when Saul went down, the people lose all hope. What do they do? They have God's people abandoning their cities leaving them for the enemy to take ownership of. This is a, just a, a terrible situation, and the fallout is great. It shows, it reveals the level of sin that Saul had fallen into and the fallout of that sin on the whole nation of Israel. So leaders have a higher, higher responsibility uh, because their fall can endanger many more people than the fall of someone who's not a leader. And I, I really believe that. That, that. That's why in the New Testament it openly presents a higher standard for leaders than, than just believers in general. Uh, even saying that they should be blameless for just cause before the world and God's people. So uh, you can't be an elder unless you're blameless, unless you're above reproach. And those who teach will be held to even a higher standard and, and judgment of God. And so it's serious stuff here uh, in leadership. Verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, 
they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they didn't come around until the following day. They had fought all day long, you know, and into probably the evening, and then they went, and went to bed. They left everybody laying on the battlefield. They came back the next day to plunder the bodies, okay? And so they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, which is a false god, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So Saul's tragic death gave opportunity for the enemy of God to disgrace the name of the Lord. And Saul's death was used to glorify pagan gods and to mock the living. I'll tell you something. I, the church in this age is right now, I believe, being tested by the Lord. Because the enemy is showing his ugly head in numerous ways on this earth. And the pressure is growing, it's mounting against churches that are faithful to God. We are now more than ever under the microscope of government, of people who are caught up in the woke culture, cancel culture, BLM, you just go down the list of all these groups that are looking for Christians that they can somehow come after. And right now the church is being tested. I wonder how many churches are already caving in. And they are lining up with the mantra that is popular in culture today. Because they don't want to have to face persecution. Or they have a philosophy, they, because they're not in the Word of God, they've moved away from that. They now are thinking on, on their own, and they now have this idea that the answer in today's culture is to try to get people to like you. That's how the church grows today. Get people who are lost to like you. What do you how do you do that? Well, you stop using certain biblical terms. You don't use terms that lost people don't understand. What do you mean you actually mention from the pulpit repentance? You actually call it sin? You know, they, they look at these things. What, what do you mean? You're, you, you actually you taught propitiation? They, they look at that as that is the wrong thing to do. Use words that they understand and soften the message. Change the gospel enough that the world can accept it. Well, let me tell you what you just did. You just lined up with what the epistle says, that one of the apostles, well, several of them said it, that you have just now tickled the ear of, of those who are lost. You stopped preaching the truth which is the only message that can save them from sin. And you've now come to this other, through this other uh, angle, now we're just going to, there's other ways to get them in the church. And so we're going to say it so they like it. We're going to make the Sunday service more of, a, of an entertainment moment. It's an attractional moment. We'll lower the lights, like the movie theater, like the concert. We'll use a lot of lights. We'll use a lot of contextualization. We'll even throw a little bit of smoke in there, a haze over the room. 
and the world will love it. The church is being tested right now. And far too many churches are falling into that trap. And honestly, a lot of them don't even know it. They don't know it. But when you drift away from truth, then you become susceptible to lies. You don't recognize the lie of the enemy when you don't know the truth. And that's why the true church of Jesus Christ is committed to teaching the Bible, all of it. And we're committed to remaining faithful to the Word. That's why Peter said, he said to the church, you need to grow in the grace, let's be gracious, let's be merciful, but the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to grow. And when you cease to become that kind of church that cares about literally whether a person is a piece of wheat or a piece of weed, and you just are glad they're present, you've lost the purpose of the church. And what you're doing is you're ca- those who remain in that church that are saved are not going to further grow in that setting under that kind of leadership. And you're going to cause some to fall away. Others will embrace it and think it's so wonderful. This is so cool. You know, we've got such a cool church. And it's not, God never intended church to be cool. He intended the church to be faithful. Faithful. Why? Because God knows what's coming. And there's going to come a time when cool ain't in. It won't work. And if you're not faithful, remember the seven churches that Jesus wrote letters to in Revelation? Only two out of seven received commendation for faithfulness. Two. And so that's what we see today. That's what we see. And we, we, we as a church should be praying for other churches, praying that God would raise up an army of believers who, are, who remain committed to the, the Word of God, who are committed to worshiping God in purity and holiness and who will not participate in this nonsense that goes for church today. It sounds like I'm I'm not against any church. I want all churches to follow the Lord, to follow the Word. But Paul, Peter, James, John... Jesus, they all called out what was not true. They all called out sin. They all called out, they even gave names. Don't follow that person any longer. Because the church was being deceived in places. So we need to be careful there. Put God first. Uh, Now, let's move if we can into, uh, well, let me finish this up. This is, so, uh, so they took the, their bones, verse 13, and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. So these, these men of God from Jabesh Gilead came all the way over. Now, you can look on the map again. Look where they're living. They're way over here on the far east. And... Uh, they're not in the Far East, I mean, east of, of the Jordan River. And they travel all the way over to Beth Shan, 
and they recover the bodies, and they burn the bodies, and then they bury the bones. They, they did a proper burial for these, the, the Saul and his sons. And so um, Israel has been shamed by Saul's actions, and Israel has fallen into uh, apathy. They've fallen into apostasy to a degree, uh, and, and here God is dealing with all that. So now we come to 2 Samuel chapter 1. We enter 2 Samuel, and I'd like for us to just kind of stay, camp here for a minute and uh, look at maybe at chapter 1 tonight if we can. Um, when, when David heard of Saul's death, it's very interesting. He didn't rejoice over it. There, you have to, that had to enter your mind. For all that Saul did to David, tried to do to David, take his life, lied to him, ma manipulated him, uh, toyed with him, you, you would have thought that David, probably on the inside, on the outside show compassion, but on the inside there's a sword killing, killing Saul and rejoicing over Saul's death. Uh, but that's not the case. In fact, he mourned and composed a song in honor of Saul and Jonathan, the song of the bow. The Song of the Bow. And we'll see that here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, around verse 11. But in spite of all that Saul did against David, David spoke well of Saul after his death. So choosing this kind of heart showed David to be a true man of God, after, or man after God's own heart, right? It showed that the years in the wilderness escaping Saul really were years when God trained him to be a king after God's heart. And, and David became twice the man. Now... He's been in a bad place recently. He went into like a lull. He went into like a despondency. And he's trusted in himself instead of God. And he ended up over in the land of the Philistines. And he's been doing all that nonsense. But, but, but David has recently recovered. You say, how's that? Remember last week, God brought David to his knees. They come back from what they were thought were, they were going to go in battle against Israel. I think God kept an alliance from happening that would have destroyed David's future. Um, some believe that David would never have fought against Israel. I don't know. We don't really know for sure. But what we do know is David returned to Ziklag because uh, Achish, the king of Gath, told him go home. And home at that time was in the land of the Philistines. He goes home. All of his, his wives, his men's wives and children, uh, they're all gone because the Amalekites have come in and taken them. And uh, the Amalekites are like a bunch of little buzzards Philistines have gone off to fight against Israel. They come in behind in the Philistine land and try to plunder all the Philistines' wives and children and take all their, their plunder. And they took everything. And then David, remember, he was so low, his men were about to stone him to death. You know, we were with you going north. First of all, David, you, you stopped following God a while back. We shouldn't even be here. And then we went north to fight with the Philistines against our own people. And then the king there sent us back home, and now are what? All because of you. And they picked up stones, literally. They picked them up. They were ready to stone him. David became so distraught and so heavy, he finally wakes up, snaps out of it, and begins to pray. And the first thing we saw was that he strengthened himself in the Lord. And then after he strengthened himself in the Lord, he inquired of the Lord, what should we do? And the Lord said, pursue them. And the third thing he did was he engaged with the Lord in pursuing the enemy. 
And of course, they recovered everything. In fact, they got more than what they had lost because the Amalekites, if they caught up with and killed, um, had plundered many villages and cities. And they got all that plunder too. So they came out way ahead. But now David is thinking more, he's thinking straight. He has returned to the Lord. He has repented of his sins. He's come clean. And that's where we find him now, okay? Um, and after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So David knows that there's a battle raging up in Israel because he was going to go fight in that battle. He's probably wondering, what, how's that going? What's happening? So while he's there in Ziklag for a couple days after recovering everything, um, now something happens. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped the camp of Israel. So he was under the... Uh, he was probably uh, held captive by Israel, so he's not an Israelite. And David said to him, how did it go? And tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then, <laughs> then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man told him and said, by chance, this is really interesting, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Remember the people that Saul was supposed to wipe out? And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. So the, the, the arrows had done their damage. He's mortally wounded. Let me go ahead and help the king. He's asking me to take his life. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, this entire account of this young Amalekite, I believe, is a fabrication. The reason I believe it's a fabrication is because this is his word. But in the last chapter, we got the word of the Lord of what happened. Okay? Uh, his words are contradictory to what we read in chapter 31, verse 2 through 6. Let me read it for you again. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the son of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found, uh, found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Okay. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. 
Look at this. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. So this guy had probably been captured by Israel and he was near the area where uh, the Philistines had, had moved in and started killing off the Israelites. They lost control. This guy is freed or breaks free, whatever. He's there at the battlefield. Why? Well, I believe the guy is there to plunder. And he happens probably, and this is all nobody knows for sure, so I'm postulating here that he probably heard Saul have that conversation with his armor bearer, come and kill me. And the armor bearer said no. So this guy comes to David and he says, this is what happened. And he, puts, he inserts himself in the place of the armor bearer. Uh, and the reason he comes to David, he takes Saul's crown, takes Saul's armband. He comes to David because he's thinking there's a reward. David is going to show favor to me because I've done something so good. I've brought these things to David. And uh, he's in for a rude awakening, <laughs> that's all I can tell you. Um, <laughs> Uh, but let's delve deeper into the, this part of the story for a moment. Okay, remember back in 1 Samuel 15, 2 through 3, when God commanded Saul to completely destroy the people of Amalek. Here's what he said specifically. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Well, we know that Saul failed to do that. Now, play it out. If this story is true and it was an Amalekite that took out Saul, and know this, here's, here's the deeper, if we delve deeper here, the Amalekites, Amalek is a representative or a illustration of or a type of sin in the Old Testament. It represents sin. Let me explain. You might want to write this down, okay? Um, the Bible doesn't specifically say this. But Amalek is an illustration of our fleshly, carnal nature that's controlled by sin. Like our fleshly nature, write these down if you want, or at least just, you're not going to write it all because I'm going to move quickly, but Amalek focuses its attack on the tired and the weak, like sin, like temptation. What was it? They came up out of Egypt, God's people, they're traveling. The first, they come into the promised land, or that area. The first people to strike them are the Amalekites while they're weak and tired. When does Satan usually come after us? When did Satan, after he tried to tempt Jesus, uh, when did he go to Jesus? After Jesus had fasted for 40 days, right? So he shows up. Then he can't get Jesus to give in, so what does he say? I'll come back when there's a more opportune time. So Satan's always looking for the opportunity, and that's what Amalek is. It's a picture of how temptation comes at the time when we're weak, when we're vulnerable. When I was in college, I shared this. 
a young lady that I had such respect for. Her name was Melanie Green from Farmersville, Ohio. And Melanie was just a godly woman. And uh, all the guys on campus would have loved to have dated Melanie. She was an attractive young lady, but she was so godly. And, and so all these guys who had such respect, if somebody said something uh, off color about Melanie, the, I'm telling you, the guys on campus would have gone off on them. They had such a, they, they just revered her. Not because she put herself in some air, but she was just so, she was pure. She was holy. And I, I was having a conversation with her one day. And she said to me, she said, I, I said, Melanie, you're just a, you don't realize, but so many people on campus respect you because you love the Lord, you, you're following God, you have such a fear for God. And she said to me, Greg, she said, what people don't understand is I'm still just as susceptible as anybody else. There are moments when I'm weary, when I'm weak, and if the enemy were to come in those moments, I'm just as susceptible as anybody else. So, and I believe that's true for any Christian. I don't care who you are. If you're a godly person, don't ever let up and think, well, you know, he could never hit me. No. <laughs> he, he knows when to come to you. He knows how to push the buttons in such a way. And, and that just was, I'll, I'll never forget that conversation with her. And, and so that's what the Amalekites represent that. They waited for the right time. Okay, like our fleshly nature, Amalek does not fear God. Write this verse down, Deuteronomy 25, verse 18, the latter part of the verse. And he did not fear God. Amalek did not fear the Lord. The flesh, your flesh does not fear the Lord. Satan, when he tempts, does not fear the Lord. Like our fleshly nature, God commanded a permanent state of war against Amalek. You're, you're, never, there's never a time where God lifts you from the war against your flesh. You're battling the flesh every day, right? Does you, because you become a Christian, does the war end? Oh, once I became a Christian, oh, that changed everything. Now, my flesh never even tries to, to tempt me. Are you kidding? It probably, it, you're, the war just went up. The opposite's true. Well, the passage is Exodus chapter 17, verse 16. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. It's always going to be a war as long as Amalek is around. As long as you're clothed in flesh and blood, there will be a war between spirit and flesh. Amen? Don't ever forget that. Let me give you another. Like our fleshly nature, the battle against Amalek is only one in the context of prayer and seeking God. Only as we live our lives in such a way that we seek God, that we stay focused on the Lord, that's how you overcome Amalek, the flesh, okay? So the battle against Amalek is only one in the context of prayer. Exodus chapter 17, verse 11. It says, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Who are they fighting against? Amalek. And, 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 and of course, also when he fought against it says, and, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So you could say it this way, as long as we keep our focus on the Lord, the flesh will fail. But the minute that we take our eyes off of the Lord and focus on the things that the flesh is saying, the flesh will start to win the battle. 
You see the picture? You see the, the resemblance? You see the similarity? Let me give you one more. Like our fleshly nature, Amalek was once first, but will one day be last. In the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 20. Numbers 24, 20. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. So Amalek was the first among nations. They show themselves big, but in the end, they will face utter destruction from God. And your flesh right now just rises up every day. Why does the flesh show up every day, even though you're a believer, and you rise in the morning and you pray, and you say, Lord, I give you this day, I want to serve you today, and just open the doors that you want me to walk through, and I want to be faithful. And, 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 and then five minutes later, something goes on, you know, who knows what it is, and, you know, and boy, the flesh just reacts. Now you're knee-jerking. Five minutes after praying. Isn't that the case? Is that not true? It, it never ends. And, and I think that's exactly, that's exactly what we need to be careful of. Know that if you don't crucify the flesh every day, it will rise up and show its ugly head and lead you in the wrong path. And many have fallen into destruction because of it. Uh, think about people who, um, golly, there's so many, so many pictures that come into my mind as a pastor over the years. Some guy who is working hard, his wife isn't showing attention, she's caught up in her work, her whatever, and so he turns to the flesh and he goes, well, that's not fair. She's not putting me first. She's not you know, coming near me, therefore I have a right to go and find somebody else. That's the flesh. That's all that is. It's just the flesh that is shutting down your spirit. But if you focus on the spirit in those moments, the flesh will still present the, the bait. Never going to stop. But the spirit will lead you to overcome that temptation. No one has to sin. No one has to give in to temptation. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that, right? That we, God always gives a way of escape from temptation. You don't have to give in to it. So when we make these silly, ridiculous little excuses for why we fell, well, if you knew, Pastor Greg, what I've been going through the last six months of my life, then you'd understand how I felt like that. What you need to do is repent and just take ownership for where you are. It's, it's because of you that you're in the mess you're in. Stop making excuse for it. And so that's what God's saying about Amalek. Don't give Amalek any place because it's going to try to destroy you. And if you think you're above it, you're probably the best candidate for an attack. And so we need to be so careful there. Well, moving on, getting back to, the, to this thought. Uh, verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. This is after hearing that Saul had died. And so did all the men who were with him. See, David has returned to the Lord. They were one of stunning to death. Now they're following him again. Why? Because they know that it's no longer David leading us. He's following God. Therefore, we'll follow David. 
And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So I want you to notice the contrast here. This is very interesting. Saul being the flesh's choice and David being the spirit's choice. Out of pure jealousy, out of hatred, out of spite and ungodliness, Saul took away David's family. Saul came after David, his home, his career. He came after David's security. And the best years of David's life were on the run because Saul was trying to kill him. That's what Saul did to David. That's what the flesh was trying to do to the spirit. Okay, And Saul was utterly unrepentant in the end when it all came out. He still didn't repent. Now, David, on the other hand, mourned and wept for the king who tried to kill him, who abused him, who lied to him, who deceived him, who manipulated him, who stole the years of his life. Yet David's response is in the spirit. And he mourns, he fasts over the death of King Saul. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? So now he's addressing this young Amalekite. And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David is speaking not just the right words, words that he lived by. He had two opportunities to take out Saul, and he would not touch the Lord's anointed. I really do fear any person who would attack someone that God has placed in a position of authority. I really do. I fear for them. Um, even if that person's wicked, it's the Lord who will take care of them. Did God, in this story, did God not take care of Saul, who was wicked in his, in his relationship with David? God handled it. But David would not touch the Lord. He even called him. He's the Lord's anointed. That was after the spirit had left Saul. He was filled with an evil spirit, and yet David said he's the Lord's anointed. In other words, he's still the king. God's the one who made him king, and only God can remove him as king. I think we need to be careful as God's people to respect what God is doing in others. And we look at somebody who is struggling, and we want to come in and, ah, you shouldn't be, and yeah. You don't know what the Lord's doing there. Be very careful, especially if that person's in leadership. Pray for them. There's nothing wrong with going to them. How many times did God send someone to Saul to confront him on his sin? But Saul never would listen. So you have every right to go to a leader and say, hey, wait a second, here's what I just saw you do. Explain that to me. And they try to explain it, maybe they make excuse, and you call them on it. But you're not taking them out. That's God's work. God will take them out. We need to be very careful how we 
handle that. And David looks at this young man and he says, how, how, how is it possible that you would touch the Lord's anointed? Now, this is, this is later in the day. Th this guy showed up and told David the story, the fabrication. He's tried to win favor with David so that he could get a reward. And David said, uh, so you thought that you could touch the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of his young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, if this is a fabrication that this kid spoke of and he didn't kill the king, he died because he lied. David took what he said to be true. Even though maybe David knew that wasn't true later. Maybe he learned later the story. I'm sure he did that, that the, the armor bearer saw Saul die. Didn't mention anything about the Malachite killing him. Saul fell on his sword. Maybe they, so that kid lost his life because he stood by a story that wasn't accurate. You just don't play around with God, do you? And you don't play around with the truth. So despite many opportunities to legitimately defend himself, David refused to reach out and destroy Saul. And uh, that's why David was put on the throne. That's exactly why. Verse 17, and David uh, uh, lamented with his, this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. So there's this, this lament that David writes. It's a song of lament. And it was put in the book of Jashar. And David said the people should always remember this, this, this lament. Now, some say, okay, what about this book of Jashar? That should be in the Bible. This is a lost book of the Bible. Uh, there are no lost books of the Bible. The Bible is absolutely complete, and it is completely the Word of God. Just because some, uh, the Bible mentions another book doesn't mean it belongs in the Bible. Just because there are books, ancient books, that have parts of stories that are in the Bible doesn't make it part of the canonization of Scripture. There was a very strict criteria that was followed to determine what is supposed to be in the Bible and what is not. And so David's just simply saying that there's a book of Jashar where you can find this lament that I gave. And so uh, he, here's the song of the bow. He said, your, this is it. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Let the daughters of the uncircumcised exult, lest, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor, nor fields of offering, for the, there, there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. 
In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. He's pulling out all the good that is in these two men who God used, even though one was completely unfaithful to God. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. That's not a reference to homosexuality. He's saying more than I can love, and he would not love a man, he would love a woman. That would be the in terms of a physical love, in terms or eros and or not eros, but agape love and and uh, Philadelphia love, which is philios, in terms of loving a human being, a man loves his wife should more than any other human being, right? David had a love for another human being, who was Jonathan, that far exceeded his love for others. He saw in Jonathan a faithfulness to God and how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So in this song, David showed the great love and generosity in his heart towards Saul. Sometimes he can show sorrow on the outside, but on the inside, you know, we can, we can be thinking something totally different. Uh, we do that a lot at funerals. Somebody who was mean and, and just wicked, and we go to their funeral and we say nice things about them. But on the inside, oh, they finally, you know, glad they're out of the way. Um, and <laughs> we're human. That, that happens, right? Uh, David's not that way with Saul. He really does mean what he's saying here. So what did he see in, 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 in Saul? He saw beauty. He wanted no one to rejoice over the death of Saul. He wanted everyone to mourn, even the mountains and fields. He praised Saul as a mighty warrior. Okay, He complimented Saul's personality and loyalty uh, that Saul had. He was not, look, Saul was not faithful to God, but he was undivided as a king for Israel. He never turned against Israel. He called the daughters Israel to mourn and praise the goods that Saul had done for Israel. Uh, he was faithful, Saul was faithful to, to go to battle for Israel and to make sure. But the problem is, you can be at your best, but your best isn't enough. You need God's best. You need God representing. Amen? And that's where Saul fell short. He tried to do it on his own. So all this is a powerful testimony of how David kept his heart free from bitterness, even when he was greatly wronged and sinned against. Uh, David's the fulfillment of 1 Corinthians 13.5, which tells us, Love thinks no evil. True love thinks no evil. It's easy to love people that are lovable. It's really hard to love people who are unlovable. I would say in the relationship that David had with Saul, that was an unlovable relationship. Saul gave David no reason to love him. David still, it was true love for Saul. That, that just, to me, uh, man, I fall short there, huge. It's too easy to look at somebody who has done something terrible and now no room in my heart to love them, you know? 
And we have to really understand the difference between loving someone and liking someone. Between loving someone and trusting someone. We are not commanded in Scripture to like them. We're not commanded in Scripture to trust them. We are commanded to love. Commanded to love. God did not love us when we were lovable. We were unlovable. And that's when He showed His greatest love to us. And God never waited until we got it figured out and were lovable before He came after us. We should be the same with people. So you can love someone, truly love them. And it doesn't mean you have to hang out with them. It doesn't mean you agree with what they did. It doesn't mean that you think that, they're, they, that they've gotten it all figured out. They might still be a complete mess, but you are commanded. It's, a, it's an imperative that we love, that we love, and that we forgive. You can't truly love someone if you are unwilling to forgive them. Those two go hand in hand. Forgiveness, again, is not based on that you trust them. It's not based on that they have proved themselves to you. It's not based on whether you like them or not. Uh, there's people that I am commanded to forgive even if they were mean to me. I'm commanded to forgive them. Why? Because I love them. I give them to God. Trust them with the Lord. God loves them. The very, it's interesting. The very people that we, are, that we hang up on and we don't want any part of, and man, I, I can't stand what that guy did. Every time he comes in the room, oh, I just... Uh, and we get all messed up in our head. Did you know that God loves that person with the same love that He loves you? He doesn't love you more than He loves them. That would be a good reminder for us the next time we start measuring somebody else by what they've done, what they haven't done, how they act, their bad attitude, whatever. But my God loves them. I am commanded to love them. Amen? Yes, Marie. Yes. That's right. Yes. Yes, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Even when we can't see that they're reconciled, but we go ahead in our spirit and treat them as though they're reconciled. That's hard, but that's what happened. When you walk by the Spirit, you can do it. But if you let the flesh keep rising up, ain't no way you're going to win that battle. The flesh will never let you love them. You'll just continue to be bitter and hate them, and all that bitter juice is inside of you. And it's just stewing and boiling, and who knows what kind of damage it does in your body and in your mind. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you that you're not a God to leave us to, to ourselves. You came searching for us. The scripture tells us that unless the Spirit draws, 
we could never come to the Lord. So you came after, and those of us who were saved, we simply surrendered to your salvation. It was not by our works. It was your gift to us. You showed us love when we were unlovable. And now as believers with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, with the ability to love others the way you loved us, Lord, help us to walk by the Spirit that the love of Jesus would flow out of us. And that people who even wrong us and who are mean and hateful and have done terrible things, that while we wouldn't want to trust them, while we might not uh, even like them, but we will forgive them. We will love them because you first loved us. Thank you, Father, for being such a God that would care enough about us to save us and then allow us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. All by the work of the Spirit, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.